And welcome to the first episode of The Movie Passport, a new podcast series about world cinema. Today, we'll be traveling to the country of Scotland. My name is Duncan, or Valkyrst on the internet, and joining me to chat about Scottish cinema, we have... Hi there, this is Glenn Douglas Rivers from Discord. Um, and it's Jock Munro, Munro Jock's Uniforms. Thanks for coming, guys. I'm really happy to have two uh, proper Scots on the episode. And we just realized before that this is kind of a reunion of a, a Scottish meetup we had in Glasgow in 2017. So that's also really exciting. So thanks for coming. Uh, before we get into our main discussion, I'd like to give the listener a brief history of Scotland and its film industry. So, and feel free to correct me if I've got anything wrong, guys. <laughs> so the, the country of Scotland covers the northern third of the island of Great Britain. It consists of the lowlands, where most of its population lives, the wild highlands, and hundreds of surrounding islands. Its name is Latin for Land of the Scots, a Celtic people from Ireland who settled there in the 5th century. Throughout the Middle Ages, Scotland was an independent country and fought wars to maintain its independence from the neighbouring country of England. However, the two countries united politically in the 18th century, forming the United Kingdom of Great Britain. The main language spoken in modern Scotland is English, but the indigenous languages of Scots and Scottish Gaelic are also used. Throughout the 20th and 21st centuries, Scotland produced many acclaimed filmmakers, such as May Miles Thomas, Bill Forsyth, Paul McGeegan, John Grierson, Kevin MacDonald, and Lynn Ramsey. It has also produced popular actors like Sean Connery, Ewan McGregor, Deborah Kerr, James McAvoy, Tilda Swinton, David Tennant, Kelly MacDonald, Brian Cox, Gerard Butler, and Billy Connolly. Today, we're going to be talking about some of our favorite Scottish films. Each host has chosen a film about Scotland or set in Scotland. Um, and I believe, Glenn, you'll be telling us about our first film. Yep, of course. So I have chosen a small-ish film called Sunshine on Leaf. So this is a movie released in 2013 and directed by Peter Mullen. So Peter Mullen, you might have seen around in many different franchises. He's been in the Harry Potter films. He's been in Westworld. Um, he's in Train Spotting and you know various films. Um, but he also um, is an actor turned director. Um, so this is, I believe, at least his third film that he directed. And if this was, you know, an Irish movie roundtable, I would choose one of his earlier films called The Magdalene Sisters. Uh, so set within uh, 1960s Ireland um, and covering like the period, um, you know, an inst institution run by nuns, which, you know, imprisoned women um, that are considered fallen. Uh, but this film is set within... Uh, well, set within Scotland, of course, and Mamma Mia wasn't the first to do it, but I think that it feels like this is very much inspired by the success of Mamma Mia and, you know, um, a very similar film. Um, so a jukebox musical, um, but set, um, you know, a lot of the stories are, you know, constructed based around lyrics to the songs featured. And it includes the soundtrack of um, songs by the uh, the Proclaimers. Uh, so that's a Scottish band. Uh, they're the most popular song that you might have heard of is called I'm Gonna Be 500 Miles. Um, so it covers three storylines. Um, and first of all, there's Rab and Jean. So both the parents um, and they've been married for 25 years, coming towards their silver wedding anniversary, we learn that Rab cheated on Jean very early in the marriage, just maybe a year 
after they got married and has a long-lost daughter that you didn't know about until birth mother died. So that's the first storyline. And then second, it covers their daughter, Liz, and her boyfriend, Ali. So Liz wants to go away, travel the world, um, is looking into jobs within America, whereas Ali worked within the army, but after a horrific event that he witnessed, decides to quit. And he wants to get married to Liz. So that's the second storyline. And then the third would cover Davy, who is son to Rabin Jean. Um, goes in on a blind date with a girl called Avon. Um, and then his his story is like Ali. They both worked within the army. And after the, the event they witnessed, they want to leave. And it's just about him um, going on that path and finding love. So it's really a great, uplifting musical, a lot of great uh, musical numbers within that. But also a lot of serious, you know, a mixture of comedy and drama. And a lot of the actors within the movie are maybe not A-list at the moment, but you you may have seen them in a lot more big budget, um, more recognisable films or TV series. Um, so especially George Mackay, who plays Davy and you will have recently seen him in the movie Seventeen, but certainly it's um, you know it's a movie, not one that I've watched multiple times. Um, I've watched it three times so far. Um, first in twenty fourteen, recently for the podcast, and maybe somewhere in between that time. But certainly one that I would recommend. Uh, great storylines, um, and also of course the music, uh, the music within it, and what they do with it. I would certainly recommend. What are you guys' thoughts on the movie? Um, this was my first time watching it. I hadn't heard of it before. And I didn't actually realize it was a musical until I started watching it. Like, I watched the trailer. <laughs> and, like, the scenes from the trailer just seemed like a normal narrative film. And then we, I, I convinced my partner that we should watch it. Because it looked really sweet. It was like a romantic movie. And then about five minutes in, the characters start singing. <laughs> and my partner's like... She just turned to me and glared because she hates musicals. Well, she doesn't hate them, but she just finds them really unrealistic, which is funny because she loves music um, and she loves like musical biopics. But there's something about musicals where she just can't suspend her disbelief. Whereas I don't mind them. I, I quite like musicals and I find they can have quite a broad range from like happy and funny to quite serious and dark, like Sweeney Todd. Les Mis has, is quite a serious film. Yep. Um, but this is a very happy, sunny film. Um, and I did just feel myself just feeling happy and, and taking joy in watching it. Um, and I think my partner eventually got into the mood as well. It's a funny type of musical, though, as you say, Glenn. It's not a traditional musical where the musical pieces kind of come out of what is happening in the narrative. It's almost like done in reverse, where the, the music exists before the narrative and the, the narrative basically functions as a kind of skeleton to hold the music in place. So the obvious one, like you, you mentioned Mamma Mia, that was a big one recently i think it's a big it's a big thing on stage like in the sort of 70s and Absolutely. 80s and 90s and then more being adapted onto the screen with like Mamma mia and rock of ages that came out a few years ago um jersey boys i think does a similar thing uh we will rock you things like that which I mean, just takes like a did, until so, we decided to do the podcast i didn't actually know how many there were but you know on wikipedia it lists movies all the way back to the 1930s yeah right this yeah. type of musical <laughs> yeah it, it seems to be either like a particular band and they'll, they'll put together a narrative around it or it'll be like a period or a genre of music where they like sort of captures a mood in a particular place um it, it's strange where to make a movie but i think it works in this movie because it's just so fun and i think the i think the actors are, are actually the ones singing it um and i think they do quite a good job so that works really well. And it just, yeah, the final sequence is so fun when they finally build up to 500 miles. Because I, I don't know much about the Proclaimers. Like, I don't dislike them, but, but I just haven't heard a lot of their songs. Although I recognized a few that I didn't actually realize they sung. But the exception is 500 miles. So I like how they finally build up to their biggest hit. What did you think of the movie, Jock? Um, I wasn't a fan of the movie, but um, I'm not a big fan of the Proclaimers. So that's probably a major factor in it. 
other than that, um, a lot of the dialogue was um, pretty accurate for working class Scottish dialogue. Um, there were a few bits of stupid lighting, like um, he's a Scientology, he was a Scientologist. Um, oh, I thought that meant he was into science. It <laughs> was just incredibly stupid. I can't believe a medical professional would say that. Yeah, yeah, it's very sort of silly and almost cartoonish at times. I don't. I feel like there's nothing realistic necessarily about the movie. It is very much operatic. But um, you're not a fan of the Proclaimers, Jock? No, I'm not. Oh, fair enough. If you're not a if you're not a fan of the Proclaimers, I can't imagine you'd like this movie very much. Um, one question I had was um, the the introduction of the of the movie is set in Afghanistan with the two characters serving in in war. And then they sort of come back and it's referenced a little bit like he had one of the characters might have shell shock. And then towards the end of the film, he kind of goes back to to serve. But did you guys have any thoughts on why they had sort of references to, to a war during this otherwise kind of like happy musical melodrama? I thought it just fit with the storyline of that he wants to get married to Liz. She doesn't and she wants to travel. And then early on, we see that they leave the army and, you know, their job prospects aren't great, so they end up working in a call centre. Mm-hmm. So they both feel quite trapped that, you know, they've left that and, you know, there's not great jobs waiting for them. So they do that and um, throughout the movie that you, um, you know, you see when he's interacting with his sister and his sister-in-law, he doesn't even have a place to live. He's living with his sister. So he's feeling like, you know, there's nowhere for him. Mm-hmm. So I think that it all builds to that storyline where eventually he does go back to the army. Yeah, right. Like um, they have this fond connection to Edinburgh and family life, but it feels like a bit of a dead end. And that's something mm-hmm. that seems to be a common theme throughout the film. Like the mum kind of looks back on once having been able to go off and travel the world, but decided to stay. And then the daughter sees that as a kind of cautionary tale where she doesn't want to settle down and live in, in Edinburgh. She wants to go off and explore the world and be free. Um, so it's kind of that tension between the traditional domestic life and home and then yearning for adventure. And maybe that's part of what the serving is for that character, being able to go off and, and have an adventure. And it sort of it sort of like works as a good way to map the the 500 miles song this idea that Mm -hmm. there's this great distance between these two characters but there's still this kind of emotional connection between them that they can still be in love despite wanting to travel and wanting their freedom um i think the story of um uh sort of like outward looking scottish people is quite relatable to the scottish nation as a whole Mm -hmm. also a martial tradition there is Scotland is only the number three most in terms of ethnic Scots in the world behind Canada and the United States. Number three what, sorry? In terms of ethnic Scots, Scotland is third behind Canada and the United States. Yeah, I I hadn't considered that, the sort of the martial tradition, perhaps, of of Scottish culture. Um, And also this idea that maybe Scottish people don't I don't know, romanticize their own home that much or don't find their own home that interesting and want to go off and explore the world, which is obviously a common experience for a lot of countries, especially a lot of uh, Commonwealth countries that are always looking to bigger places like America or or big cities, even just living out in the country, always look at the big cities as something to aspire to and something to go off and have an adventure in. Um, seem like a lot of the songs also speak to the Scottish experience. Like there's that one interaction between Davy and Yvonne where it's a song where he's talking about like Scottish men see this through the foam of a glass and Sunshine and Leaf, obviously uh, referencing Edinburgh. I think the movie shows some of like pub culture. There's several scenes in pubs and it shows it as yes. quite a, like a lively, happy place where everyone's singing together. Um, and also like a love of storytelling um, seems like a big part of the film. Um, yeah. Anything else you guys wanted to, to say about the film? No, I, I think that was, that was the main thing. Um, go watch it. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. All right, well, let's move on to our second film. Uh, Jock, do you want to tell us 
Yeah, um, my film I picked was Dog Soldiers, which is a film set in the Scottish Highlands and has to do with werewolves. It's kind of like an American... Uh, kind of like the American film Predator, but um, with werewolves instead. The movie starts out with um, a group of SAS soldiers on a training mission, wanting to meet up with um, a specialist ops group who are supposed to be like the best of the best, but um, finds them all dead, except them one. Um, then slowly a few of them start dying and they're forced to take refuge in the house of a zoologist who tells them that they the deaths were caused by werewolves. Um, then it goes into detail about um, the various masculinity of the soldiers and um, how it's detrimental to them as they're slowly picked off until only one's left alive and is forced to reconcile um, his masculinity within the framework of um, a group of soldiers and move on from there. It's left ambiguous at the end. Thanks, Jock. Yeah, so I thought this movie was pretty good. Like, I'm a big fan of horror movies, and I thought this had this movie had some good scares. It was also quite, quite funny. Um, found the dialogue overly machismo and uh, macho. Like, the sort of banter yeah. between the different soldiers was quite silly. But um, I loved the werewolf design. I thought it was quite scary. It's kind of like... Um, these wolf creatures but they have these really long limbs and they're quite tall it's quite an alien shape um i like that you don't really see them much until the towards the end of the film like you just see like bits and pieces like claws and teeth but then you occasionally you'll just see a flash of the outline of the the monster and it's quite effective and quite scary um and i also really like the practical effects the 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 fact that these werewolves are actually costumes they use like real blood and gore and the blood and gore is actually quite extreme there's not a lot of it but there's several moments where there's like really really graphic sort of beheadings and tearing of bodies um are you a fan of horror movies uh, i do um yep i i do really like horror movies you know some of the classics like friday the 13th halloween i like the saw films Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's funny because I was trying to think of other movies that this movie reminded me of because it is ostensibly a horror movie but there's a lot of action in it as well like you mentioned Predator it's very similar to Predator um, another film I'd sort of compare it to is Night of the Living Dead in terms of the sort of oh, that's far, it's got like a farmhouse setting where most of the characters are hiding out for most of the film and then they're trying to board it up and, and stop the werewolves from coming in which is cool. A bit bit like John Carpenter's thing in terms of the isolation and the special effects. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that that isolation creates a lot of tension and infighting within the house because they're all stressed out about this external threat and they end up sort of turning on each other. And there's sort of this traitor potentially in their ranks. Um, And the fact that the werewolves can like turn them into werewolves so they can be bitten and then turn into werewolves the way a zombie would turn into a zombie if it was bitten and the characters hide their injuries sometimes and things like that um so it has a bit of uh, a bit of mystery and suspense to it in that regard i really liked the the scottish highland settings um i liked how it sort of connected to sort of supernatural folklore of werewolves and monsters and the fact that the scottish highlands are often associated with these kind of wild or, or sort of unknown entities like that like there's obviously a rich tradition of folklore and Celtic culture and all that. So I thought that was a nice touch that sort of located it in, in specifically in Scotland. Oh, one thing that reminds me of is The Wicker Man, if either of you have seen that. Yeah, I, I feel like that's the miss. We're not, we hadn't chosen The Wicker Man, but I feel like that's one of the big <laughs> gaps in our, in our roundtable today. So hopefully if we, if we do do another Scottish uh, roundtable at some point, I'd love to talk about The Wicker Man because that's a great, a great Scottish horror film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I also think it's it's sort of a mix of British and Scottish characters among the soldiers. Like Kevin McKidd is the main character, and he's Scottish, but a lot of the other characters seem to be English. Um, so I kind of like the idea of English characters coming to the Highlands and being terrified of, of what might be in there, and sort of linking the the wild Scot enemy to these kinds of monster monstrous figures that might have uh, haunted the the English soldiers, you know, back during the war, the medieval wars, and things like that. Similar to, I guess, the way that the Northmen are depicted as as kind of these evil, monstrous wolf creatures in the Song of Ice and Fire to the Southern Kingdoms. 
Is there any other movies you'd liken it to, Jock? The main ones I saw were the Pledge of the Thing, but I also... Yeah. Yeah, you're pointing to the likes of The Wicker Man as well. Yeah. <clears throat> I was trying to think of, like, underlying themes or messages that the film might had, but I couldn't really... Most of the film just seemed to be about the, the action and the... The, the sort of joy of this battle between soldiers and werewolves. But did you did you think there's anything deeper or any sort of subtext going on beneath the surface of the film? Well, I thought, like, um, soldier mask identity was, like, the main theme, and um, it was about the main character developing to move past mask identity and macho as the main driving force in his actions. Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, I guess, yeah, as, I, as we were saying, they are quite macho characters and they're all sort of puffing up their chests at each other and trying to have yeah. showdown, verbal sort of and physical showdowns with each other before they agree to work together. Um, and I guess maybe, yeah, that's reflected in the intense aggression of the uh, of the werewolves themselves. You know, yeah. It's like these, these macho men that have finally met their match and have to think of other ways to, to defeat their enemy. Um, I did want to point out that uh, the the director, Neil Marshall, film, this is his debut film, but he made another film called The Descent, which I would highly recommend, which I think is set in England. Um, But that's a fantastic, that's one of my favorite horror movies, a very claustrophobic movie about a bunch of cave divers going into a cave and finding something scary down there. Um, And Marshall also directed several quite prominent episodes of Game of Thrones, like he directed Blackwater and the Watchers on the Wall. So he's quite a prestigious sort of action director in film and television. I think that's one of the reasons they picked Dog Soldiers for this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I was trying to think of other werewolf films that I really enjoy, and I can't actually think of any. Like, because I can think of great... Underworld. Underworld, yeah. Because I can think of, like, really scary vampire movies and zombie movies. Most of the werewolf movies I can think of are more like action movies, like Under- Underworld or this. Yeah, I'll keep searching for a good one. All right, we, uh, we might move on. Uh, so for our third Scottish movie, um, we have a roving English correspondent, Bina, uh, who's going to be talking about the film Red Road. Uh, Bina couldn't join us for the main co- podcast, but she's recorded an early discussion of that film. So take it away, Bina. Okay, so the movie I want to talk about is maybe one of the less well-known ones on this podcast, and it's called Red Road, um, set on what was a very famous housing estate outside Glasgow. I think when it was built in like the post-war period, um, it was like the tallest residential blocks in Europe. And, you know, this brave new utopia when we all had these lovely new concrete housing blocks and then realised later that they weren't brilliantly well designed for humans to live in. And so I think they were demolished actually in 2015. So this is kind of like a capturing a time in urban architecture for people who are geeky about it. But it was um, directed by a female director called Andrea Arnold. And this is her first feature film. She directed an Oscar winning short called Wasp, which is really worth seeing, actually. And then she made this film and it was made kind of on the dogma style for people who are into that. It won the Cannes Jury Prize in 2006, which is kind of really unusual for a debut feature. Then it played the London Film Festival, which is where I saw it. And it won the Sutherland Prize. So it's like really critically acclaimed. And it stars Kate, uh, sorry, Kate Dickey as Jackie, who works as a CCTV operator on the estate. And she basically gets obsessed by this guy called Clyde, played by Tony Curran. And it's really unclear as we go through the movie whether Clyde is sinister or whether he's just a well-meaning guy. He's obviously come out of prison and she's surprised to see him out of prison. And it's basically almost like a stalker drama. And then at some point, she's obviously on a vengeance mission and she tries to frame him for sexual assault and then has a second thought. But it it is, it's just a movie about paranoia and surveillance and stalking in this very, I think, amazing, I mean, in some ways, beautiful urban setting, although not many people would agree with me, with very strong performances and cinematography by Robbie Ryan. So I obviously love this film. Um, For people who want to know what she went on to do, she went on to do films like Fish Tank, which is really good, Wuthering Heights, like a really interesting version of that, and then American Honey. So all very indie stuff I would say and is obviously influenced in this film by things like I guess Coppola's The Conversation, Michael Haneke's Caché, Lynn Ramsey's Ratcatcher so it's very much in the sort of the indie film genre. 
So did you guys get to watch this film? And if so, what did you think? So I did um, watch it yesterday and I thought it was, you know, I liked the the mystery around it. Like why is she so obsessed with not just, um, I've forgotten the name, but... Clive. <laughs> oh, Clive, Clive. Uh, no, Clyde. Clyde, yeah. Um, so not just him, but um, I noticed that she was also obsessed with, um, she kept following the guy with the dog. Yes. <laughs> but I guess mainly it was Clyde and like why she was interested in him. I mean, you get hints throughout the movie, um, especially when you get the, she gets the phone call from the police and then like how it all ties in and then like her, you know, relationship with her father-in-law. So eventually you find out and why, you know, she tried to get to know this get to know Clyde and then like her her whole plan but I did think that her her U-turn where she decides to contact the police and say that she wanted to drop the charges I thought that was a bit quick yeah lots of people at the time that was the one thing people criticized was the ending and even I kind of was okay with it the first time I watched it but this time I was like oh okay it would have probably been better if she'd gone through with it and it just ended up really dark so what would you give it overall, Glenn? Um, I would recommend the film. It's, um, you know, it's really dark and quite interesting. How about you, Jock? Did you get to watch it? Yeah, I did. Um, I kind of didn't like landing. Like, I felt like it was um, quite irresponsible of her and I felt uneasy throughout the whole thing. Like, I do think the protagonist was the villain, in my opinion. Like, it was more of an antagonist, you know, because, and it opens up questions about, like, very strong questions at the time about CCTV and um, police involvement and that and how much power they have. So I thought it was good from that respect. I think you're absolutely right, Jock. I mean, I think it is one of these films where you're at the start, you sympathise with her, but you're not sure by the end what to think of her. Like her reaction seems so disproportionate. Um, yeah. And she is like this protagonist antagonist. I mean, I think Clyde's actually quite sympathetic. Um, and Kate Dickey's good at playing those sorts of roles, I think. I mean, it's worth saying for Vassals of Kingsbury people, this actress who was unknown at the time did go on to play Lysa Aaron in Game of Thrones. Yeah. Oh, she was also in The Pillars of the Earth. Mm, yes, I've forgotten about that. Good point. Um, but how do you feel about the way CCTV is depicted? I mean, I was quite shocked now going back watching it. Like the bit very early on where she thinks there's a girl who's maybe under attack and calls the police, but then it's just her boyfriend. And then she says false alarm. And I was like, wow, I mean, that's that's a lot of power, isn't it? And you're making all these sort of like micro judgments about whether someone's at risk or not. And I thought that was quite like the 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 level of surveillance. Is that just because it's a counsellor's state or is that because, I mean, is that just what we have all through our lives? Because we're a very CCTV country, aren't we? And Yeah, we have it, 20% of the world's CCTV cameras. Yeah, and more and more of it with facial recognition, right? Which is really scary. Well, I thought it was just because of where, so because it was that particular area, so like quite a rough area. So that's why they would have had staff involved. Um, Of course, the CCTV security officers like that will be stationed throughout the UK. But I think there was like a big focus on that area because crime rates were quite Mm. high. Yeah, in 2006, when the film was done, Glasgow was the murder capital of Europe. Really? Like, legitimately? I always thought that was like a a scare story told in anti-Scottish southern newspapers. Because it does capture, I think it tries to capture, although the story is itself quite outlandish, because it's shot in this dogma style, which is like handheld cameras, very realistic. It is trying to capture a slice of social life in a way that, you know, Braveheart clearly isn't... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, but I think it I think it is interesting as a bit of a time capsule like of just how just a little slice of life in Scotland at this particular point you know but early how- on in the film I was a bit shocked when I seen all the VHS tapes oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> and her little Nokia phone when phones could literally only call people or just about send a text message yeah, it's um, it's another time, isn't it? It really is. But how do you guys feel about it? I mean, this is a Scottish movie roundtable. Um, and I think what's interesting in all of these films is how they do or don't portray Scotland. How did you feel about this? As a, I mean, it's not she's not a Scottish director. Interestingly, she's a I think she's English, but obviously showcasing a lot of really good Scottish acting talent. People like mm-hmm. uh, Martin Compton and Tony Curran and Kate Dickey. 
I, I did think that with, you know, a lot of movies that we've picked within this round table, a lot of the movies are like early movies. So a lot of the actors, crew that have worked on the films that we were talking about have gone on to more well-known stuff. Um, so like you were saying, Martin Compton, you know, mm. one of the, the biggest actors in the UK at the moment for Line of Duty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I was thinking of that tr- particularly with train spotting, and you get that very young Kelly McDonald and yes. Hugh McGregor looks so young, and yeah, you're just like all that talent that was hopping around at that time. I was thinking actually when I looked at these films that is there any such thing as a Scottish middle class and a Scottish middle class movie? Because the movies are either these sort of like epic Aristo movies like Braveheart, or they're sort of like depicting, I guess, in train spotting and and certainly Red Road, like the lower end of the of the sort of economic spectrum. But there's not, there's not, you know, there's a very strong, and I hate this, this kind of genre of English middle class movie oh, start starring people like Judy Dench or Kristen Scott Thomas. <laughs> My husband hates films <laughs> like this, you know, things like Military Wives, like you know, very, very sepia tinted and earnest and gentle. And uh, does that exist in Scottish film? Maybe Duncan knows this. <laughs> I cannot think of one. Yeah, they, they tend to be really gritty, hard hitting type stuff, and you know, um, a lot of the the Scottish films centre on like poverty, um, mm. which is why I chose Sunshine Sunshine on Leaf because it's a bit Actually, different. That's it, right? That's that is the middle class Ernest <laughs> into a movie. <laughs> oh, I have to say that film just really made me want to go and visit Edinburgh. It just it just <laughs> looks gorgeous, doesn't it? And all the views and oh, it just it it's never looked more beautiful. Um, yeah. Anything else to say about Red Road? Would you recommend it, Jock? You didn't give it a rating, I think, or was it? Did the ending kind of undermine it for you? Um, well, I am a bit concerned about um, showing uh, false rape allegations in the film, given how there they are in reality, how it could cause a disproportionate perception in the general public. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah, that is a really good point. Um, I hadn't even thought of it in that respect. Yeah, that's yeah, a good point. Yeah, just from a sociological point of view. So I think it was quite a strong character study and all the cinematography was pretty incredible given uh, it's a small indie film. Mm, yeah, Robbie Ryan's a phenomenal cinematographer and he went, again, he went on to photograph some phenomenal films. Um, maybe, I wonder if that's why Andrea Arnold then made her withdraw the rape allegation at the end and maybe did it too quickly yeah. to make it feel realistic to kind of save herself from that criticism because at the end she doesn't pursue it but I do think it's interesting yeah. that all the films that we've chosen maybe not Sunshine on Neath but the other three are in their own ways controversial I mean if you think this one you know how far should you depict a false rape allegation when you know that's a, a very abused false trope that people can throw around and then train spotting I remember at the time got a lot of criticism for sort of glamorizing drugs and when I was watching it my husband and I were like how could anyone think this glamorizes drugs it looks absolutely horrific (laughs) (laughs) but at the time it was and I think it's because it had I mean I watched train this shows how old I am train spotting came out my first year of university and everyone had the soundtrack which was awesome Mm -hmm. and everyone had the poster on their wall and it was like I think that the dance music soundtrack was so good and it it's kind of weird because it disassociated itself from actually the really horrific stuff that's in the film. But that did get a lot of shit at the time. Um, for, well, yeah. I wasn't born. <laughs> Make me feel old, <laughs> Make me feel old. Well, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, the you know, for the listener out there, we had this very long conversation around um, people like Mel Gibson, who, you know, have produced films like the Mad Max trilogy, well, that starred in the Mad Max trilogy and all these really famous movies, Braveheart, and how, you know, like how we can view those films, given what he later becomes involved in. And in fact, Kevin Guffrey within Sunshine and Leaf actually was just acute, well, sentenced and proved guilty of sexual assault yesterday. No, really? I had yep. no idea. Gosh. I did know about it, but I didn't know. So I knew that he had been accused, but I didn't know until yesterday that the court case must have been very recently. It was in the newspapers that he was accused. Well, he was, um, you know, proved guilty. Well, sentenced as, <laughs> as guilty. Wow. I mean, what I find about films, which I think makes them harder, is... 
you know, like if it's a novel or an opera, because I mean, lots of people can't listen to Wagner because of his anti-Semitism. It's you can you can choose to sort of um, eliminate that from your life. But with films, there's so many people involved. So even if I didn't want to watch Braveheart because of Mel Gibson, and I do find him quite detestable, you know, there's all the other actors giving amazing performances as the writers, as the photography. So it's and even in Sunshine and Leaf, I mean, I think that it's it's just such an uplifting, gorgeous film. And then do I not watch it because this one guy got accused of sexual assault does it invalidate the other performances i guess that's why kevin spacey was sort of like retroactively taken out of all the money in the world but for i mean my view is probably on one end of the spectrum whereby especially with group creations like this i'm, I'm quite okay with watching them um i find it okay to sort of dissociate myself from individual acts i think it's more problematic almost in what um, Jock said about showing something that is unpalatable. So, for instance, Breakfast at Tiffany's, no one I think involved in that has got a track record that's horrible. But it has, you know, Mickey Rooney, a white guy playing Mr. Yunioshi, a Japanese guy in yellow face. I find that really, I mean, I wouldn't watch that. So it, to me, it's more about what's on screen than what's behind the lens or what's in the private life in a way. But maybe that's a weird way to look at it. <laughs> I agree, but I'm also for like putting pressure on like studios and stuff to remove problematic characters and stuff once it's been proven, of course. Like, oh, what like retroactively taking people out? Yeah, yeah. Or at least putting guidance on things. Like I know Disney yeah. Plus has done that with a lot of films, right? They've said, you know, just be careful. Before yeah, that's you watch a good this idea. Kids, make maybe oh, you want to discuss it with them. I think that's re- a really good way of doing handling it too. Um, I thought the Doctor's Use Estate did a really good thing where they let a lot of his books down, but just took out those few that had problematic depictions in them. Thanks, Bina. Uh, Sorry I couldn't join for that discussion, uh, but I did watch Red Road on your recommendation and I found it to be a riveting psychological thriller. Um, I thought the visual storytelling and the naturalistic style and the way the film encourages you to to participate in the spying and the stalking that the main character commits really, really interesting. Um, I love the mystery of it. I love the, the, the fact that you didn't really understand what her motives were and whether what she was doing was good or bad. I think it really plays around with your perceptions and your expectations in really interesting ways. Um, I thought the film did a great job of juxtaposing the main character's perception of the world through the surveillance cameras where everything is really distant and cold. And then again, the world up close when she's walking the streets and when everything suddenly becomes really overwhelming and dangerous. I think it shows how like Perception is everything. Like the world is completely different depending on whose eyes you're looking through. Um, and even even though the film was shot a decade ago, I thought there was really something really sort of apocalyptic about it, like the decaying buildings and the barren landscape and the the constant surveillance of all the characters. Felt very much like the characters are trapped in this prison, um, this psychological prison. So I, I really I thought that was a really good film, which I'd never heard of. So I was, I was glad to watch it. All right, we might. Uh, move on to our final film. The film that I have chosen is a 1996 black comedy drama, and it is called Trainspotting. And this film is set in a poor area of Edinburgh, and it follows the lives of a group of 20-something drug addicts. The main character, Renton, played by a young Ewan McGregor, rejects what he considers the boring straight life and instead chases the endless highs and lows of heroin use, financing his habit with a series of petty crimes. He and his friends manage to kick the habit several times, but always end up using again. Uh, Train Spotting is the second film from Danny Boyle, and it features a brilliant early performance from McGregor, as well as Kevin McKidd and Kelly MacDonald. The film does a great job of mixing tragedy and comedy. It has a really frantic, formless, hypnotic visual style that I think helps capture the attraction of drug use and also the feeling of living on the edge of society. It also has just a brilliant soundtrack. So yeah, that's Train Spotting. Did you guys manage to see the film? What did you think? I watched it recently. Um, so back in the 1990s, I sort of missed the hype of it. Didn't really know it was a thing um, so I was seven at the time but it was probably the next year when the film Monty was released that I actually found out about Train Spotting. Um, so that's a movie starring Robert Carlyle and after watching that I think you might have seen like one of his interviews and he talked about filming Train Spotting. 
but I still didn't watch it until later. Um, I think it was maybe 15. And initially, it wasn't a movie, you know, I didn't like it initially. You know, I may, might have watched half of it and then gave up. But then it was maybe a few years later, watched the full thing and, you know, enjoyed it that time. And then I've probably, this is maybe the fourth time that I've watched it. And, and yeah, it's some of the, the styles used, like some of the fantasy elements that you see are really um, effective and quite surprising. It's a great blend of comedy and serious drama. And some of like the subtle things mentioned throughout the movie, like, um, you know, the point where we learn that Mark's, you know, stuck in his bedroom and his parents are trying to block access. They want him stuck in there to try and get over the drug addiction. And then they come into the room and say, you have to do something. And they take him to a hospital and take his blood. So that sort of washed over me that I didn't realise they were testing him for HIV. Mm. Um, until like the recent watch that I've watched just now. So there's a lot of great um, subtle moments throughout the movie. And yeah, iconic 90s movie and, you know, made a star for a lot of the cast involved. Certainly would um, recommend the film. Um, I think it's a really good, very complex film with lots of deeper meanings. Um, the biggest of which I'd say would be Hegelian recognition with the adding of addiction to that uh, philosophical grounding. Um, sorry, sorry, I missed that. What recognition? Hegelian. Oh, okay. Recognition. The theory of Hegelian recognition is that um, people develop their idea of self from the from others, mm-hmm. and ordinarily this would lead to. Uh, sort of positive feedback which allows you to develop self-esteem, love and um, a sense of legal recognition of the mothers. But in train spotting they go um, the opposite route um, using um, what is misrecognition where instead of like love or self-esteem or even legal recognition of the others um, the likes of Lenton and Spud are sort of dragged down into a perpetual um, state of reliance on each other for recognition, but also self-destruction within each other's that's being created by this dynamic. And the story relates that to the friendship as addiction and how this is addictive to them, even though it's a harmful, harmful to them and then connects with heroin. They also go into other addictions such as alcohol or smoking, um, alcohol with Begbie, who um, comedically says, why would I put chemicals into my body? That's completely nuts. And then starts drinking. (laughs) And smoking with the, what is the character of um, Scotland? which is their friend, I can't remember his name, but um, and how he is destroyed by what is a uh, stand-in Lenin for classical liberalism, with um, more so in the book, but even in the film, he um, directly quotes Thatcher and is showing as um, first selling heroin to his friend that uh, inevitably led to his death and then the transition between him as the character as the old sort of Scottish identity to this Lenin as a Scottish identity. Sorry, sorry I missed that. That's a fascinating analysis. Um, thanks, Jock. I, ju- I just missed who, who was the, uh, the neoliberal stand-in? Which, who, which character was that? Lenin. Oh, Renton. And he quotes Thatcher, did you say? Yeah. What was that? Which quote was that? We live in a society. Oh, right. <laughs> But in the books, he straight out calls himself a classical liberal, saying I'm a classical liberal. Right. Um, I want government out of my drugs. Mm-hmm. Also, immediately. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it's a film that's bursting with ideas, and often that idea will just be given like one sentence or one shot. I mean, even things like, yeah, you, the very sly references to the fact that 
everyone is uh, addicted to something and the sort of the so-called normal domestic straight life is just as full of reliance on substances but the fact that they just happen to be legal is all that really matters like alcohol but even just i think uh big b is described as really being addicted to to bullying people and causing pain Renton's mum is addicted to Valium, but even just television and magazines and all these kinds of fantasies that we pump into our eyes and, and into our mouths and just all these stimuli in our society to keep us placated and happy, but ultimately in this state of uh, delusional giddiness and compliance. And yet during the segment in um, where he goes to London, gets a job as a real estate, I think that's again, like he, he makes the reference that they're it contradicts the earlier statement about society and says there is no society. There's just you know exchange and consumption habits, and that's all there is really. Just this endless series of spectacles to keep us occupied. Um, the film was accused of being glamorizing of drugs. Do you find is there any truth in that? And well, I guess there is a bit of glamour to it with you know some of the you know, the fantasy elements of the movie. Um, but I think, you know, it's got a nice blend um, that, yeah, there is, like, glamorizing drug addiction, but then later we see, like, all the horrific events that happen to, you know, Rent Boy, um, you know, what he has to do to get over the addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the death of Tommy. Mm. Yeah, the, the death of Tommy, the death of the baby Dawn, the, the um, yes. hallucinations that he experiences during the detox are quite horrifying. Um, and they're very um, at odds with the otherwise sort of light, fun, energetic, exciting tone of the early parts of the movies. I think, I feel like um, the drug use is always shown to be bad <laughs> in a way. Like, even in the early stages, the fact that their apartment is filthy and the fact that they're. I don't know, just always lying around doing nothing. I don't think it's necessarily glamorized, but I do think the film shows a good reason why they do it, um, like logically and illogically. Like illogically they do it, well, I mean, I guess it is logical, but they do it because it feels good. That's the obvious reason. It's just, it gives them a rush. But also just in the broader scheme of society, like they don't particularly want to be part of society. They see society as the real zombies, the real brainwash, the real drug addicts, and they just want to live outside of that i guess mm. which has been a, i guess a, a rallying cry since like the 60s like all, all these people who use drugs and, and romanticize drugs are doing it because one they want to feel good but two they don't want to toe the line they just want to do what they want to do but okay. eventually that leads to self-destruction and yeah like it, there's not a particularly good end for any of these characters so i think it can't really be called romanticizing drugs because everyone ends up pretty miserable or betraying each other. There's no real friendship. There's no real society at the end of it. Yeah, well, I think that's a fundamental point, but you could make the argument that it does create a philosophy that would allow you to do drugs. Mm. Um, also, to another dig, because he gets misrepresentative of what um, opiates are, because I've been on opiates for a year now, and the actual effect is more a sort of numbing feeling rather than euphoria or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I think they show the attraction of numbing, like the character of Tommy, where um, his girlfriend breaks up with him and he's really depressed and he kind of just doesn't want to feel anything. Like, that's the other attractive drugs that sometimes you don't want to feel the bad emotions like sadness and fear and loneliness, so drugs can kind of take that away. So not just about the presence of pleasure, it's the negation of, of bad feelings, physical and, and mental. Um, one thing that the author of the original book, Welsh, said, which I thought was interesting, was that he, he had been approached several times by filmmakers who wanted to adapt train spotting, but he knocked them back because their interpretation of it was much more serious. He called them sort of po-face social realism, which were closer to earlier drug movies like the Basketball Diaries, which are these kind of really melodramatic sort of cautionary tales about the horrors of drugs. Whereas he liked um, Boyle's interpretation where he showed the kind of this more diverse experience of what drug taking was like, or it was like the highs and the lows, the energy that, that the, the attraction, what actually attracted a lot of these addicts to the, to the lifestyle. And the fact that as Renton says, we're not idiots. We know it's bad for us, but we, we do it anyway. 
um, because we don't want to be told what to do. There's also the context of um, the Ravensclake deal shut off and the during the lighting of the train spotting book, which um, ended since steel was an intermediate good, and it was and its location to the rail lines to the work key supply chain infrastructure, it completely destroyed the economy of Leaf just a year before he was lighting it. So, so the book. I mean, I missed that the shutting down of the train station destroyed the economy. Um, no, the Ravensclay steel plant. It was the biggest steel plant in Western Europe. Oh right, yeah. Shut down, and the had up until that point a pretty strong shipbuilding industry, mm-hmm. but the only railway lines to a steel plant were to the Ravensclay steel plant, and it was shut down. And you can't really build ships without steel, so. Yeah destroyed the economy so there was uh, a response to a big amount of drug use around him during that period yeah which is a which is a common story all over the world that like a lot of these industrial societies once they their industries shut shut down like all of these well young men and women but a lot of young men were just left without work so they just turned to drugs like they a lot of these this film is essentially about disaffected working class people who have no real role, no real uh, job to do, so they just do drugs. Um, not that they don't have the option, like obviously Renton is able to find a job, but like that disaffection and that sort of aimlessness is strong in this in this film. There's also the sociological effects of like the loss of community that the trade unions provided up until the point of the rise of patriotism for like the communities of men. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and he, and he Renton makes a, has another great speech. I mean, the film is full of just this amazing narration. But when he gets the job as the real estate agent, he's saying things like, "I love all the terminology, you know, uh, downsizing and subdividing, fragmentation." So it's he's linking these sort of neoliberal atomization and restructuring of society and the the reduction of communities to individuals to this sense of tearing apart and, and fragmentation and isolation that the individuals of society feel as a result of that that new way of doing things um, and the fact that yeah if you're not part of a community you feel like shit and like, <laughs> you're going to take drugs it's, it's a pretty simple formula yeah um, um i also think the film as i said earlier there's a great point about how the communities formed afterwards were much more destructive to the ideas of self of individuals within Hmm. so like not all community is good community yeah yeah absolutely um what did you guys make of the title train spotting because i mean there is a i think in the original book which i haven't read but i read the wikipedia article about it there is a reason why the film is called train spotting it's a reference that one of the characters makes to the fact that the the drug addicts are always hanging out around the train station i think they use it as a toilet and they, yeah, they pretend that they're train spotting to cover for the fact that they're doing something nefarious. But the film itself doesn't make it clear what the title means. What did you guys think? I think it does, you know, a lot of fans of the film do ask that question. Why is it called train spotting? So initially when I watched the movie and I thought the same, you know, I, I'm not seeing anything that because <laughs> I thought there would have been one point where you would see a, a scene where they were train spotting, and that would just be a tiny part of it. But that's not even in the film. Um, so, um, but it's sort of I've never actually thought to look into the reason for it. But actually, that makes sense with um, that description of the book. Yeah, but but even even that description is pretty. It's a pretty minor interaction in the book, even. Um, so it's surprising mm-hmm. that Welsh chose that particular phrase. What do you think, Chuck? Oh, that's why I'm making the connection between the Ravenclaw steel plant because they do hang around the leaf railway station fairly much in the books, and I thought that maybe that was the connection he was making. But I could mm-hmm. be completely there. Yeah, no, I like that interpretation. The idea that maybe all these young men are just kind of hanging out at the train station because that's what they're conditioned to do. You know, you go to the train station, you go to work at the steel plant, but there's no train coming to take them to the steel plant because the steel plant's shut down. 
So they just hang around the train station, then they go and get high. It's like there's this disconnection um, that's represented in the train station, maybe. There's like nowhere to go, I guess would be the metaphor. They're at a train station with nowhere to go. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's kind of thing. But I did notice, yeah, I, I noticed there was a few sh- a few scenes at the train station. There was a few cuts between scenes where they would use the sound of a train going past. So it, it almost conjures up this image of like speed, uh, drugs running down a, a corridor of the vein, the way a train runs down, it, down tracks, the way these characters are always running towards something and never getting there. Um, and the other thing I noticed was um, the scene where Renton goes to his childhood home the, the wallpaper is covered in trains, um, which I thought was interesting because it's like it's an important room as like the place of childhood where he grew up, but now it's transformed into this the place where he's detoxing and seeing all of this nightmarish imagery that he's been running running away from for so long that is finally like catching up to him. That you know the baby Dawn haunting him and his his friend Tommy. Um, getting addicted to heroin and all these, all these sort of demon, all these ghosts kind of coming back to haunt him. Oh, did um, has anyone watched Trainspotting Two T Two? No, I, I haven't seen no. it. Um, I don't have any great desire to see it, but I heard mm-hmm. it is quite good. Like I think the first movie kind of told a complete story, and I don't really want to see what the outcome of Bigby <laughs> getting back and causing havoc will be. I feel like I never want to see Bigby it's again. A great Such a horrible. I would see. You, you enjoyed it? You'd recommend I, it? I enjoyed it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Okay. At the same time, I, I agree that it's one of those movies that could have been left alone. And it's not, and it's also not 20 years, but more like 20, I think 21 years um, later is when it's released. I guess part um, of it is like, I can't imagine any of these characters growing old. They live such self-destructive lives. Like it <laughs> seems like antithetical to the whole message of Trainspotting that they would end up in their forties. Have you seen it, Jock? Would you recommend T2? No, I would recommend it. I think it's better than the novel porno that's based off of. Mm-hmm. Like it fixes a lot of the narrative problems with it. And um, there are, it does take away some of like the sexism of sick boy from the books, which I would have liked to stay in there. And I might be biased because there's a scene where they um, lip off an entire group of orange men, and I just quite like the idea of those fascists losing money, a bunch of druggies. Cool. Uh, any more to say on train spotting? Um. This is more of a sort of Boyle invention that I think added a lot to the film. Um, in the way that he makes a lot of the scenes, like music video scenes, I think creates a sort of critique of popular culture at the time, especially with uh, adding context to um, the schoolgirl scene and the fetishization of schoolgirls in popular media. How, how so? Well, um, wasn't it at the same time as Britney Spears' whole thing? Oh, right. Yeah, possibly. Um, Yeah, like Spice Girls, Britney Spears, girl bands that were popular in the... I guess that was more maybe late 90s, but yeah, it might have been around in the mid-90s. Oh, okay. Maybe confused. I mean, I guess it was definitely, yeah, something that resonated uh, in that period. Yeah, the commercialization of, like, yeah... The fetishization of youth and, and female youth. And obviously. I also think it adds to like the idea of a rockstar lifestyle and like showing drugs in a sort of darker field than um, showing in like normal music videos and musicians while drugs are showing and this should be pretty bleak while there's direct um, scenes from like album covers and stuff like the Beatles who were drug users and there's these drug users that um, don't have the same peace and love kind of thing, but a trail and so forth. Yeah. I think it's a good contrast by Danny Boyle to like set up these scenes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the music is a huge part of the film and it sort of cycles through a few different eras, like got seventies music with Iggy pop. And um, when he moves to London, you hear the sort of nineties techno music. Did you think there was anything interesting about its depiction of Scotland or Edinburgh in particular? I think that we um, we sort of talked about this with the discussion with Bina, um, as you'll have heard, 
but um, you know, we were talking about a lot of the Scottish films. You know, they tend to be like this. You know, working class people, sometimes unemployed, quite mm-hmm. gritty dramas. Um, and this like follows a similar vein, whereas it's difficult to see like the other side of that. People that are wealthy, affluent within Scotland in terms of film, that is. <laughs> Um, yeah, like normally, like Adam does consider that as being sort of like posh by like the yes. other city, like posh and wealthy, like they're more likely to be taking cocaine than heroin, sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, I Whereas, guess I like, Glasgow sorry. would be the one you'd expect to be like the setting for like a heroin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. No, so, like Edinburgh is perceived as a more of like a cultural cosmopolitan place, and then Glasgow is more like a working class place is that what you're saying yeah yeah right yeah it's interesting we we get two very different depictions of edinburgh in this round table we get sunshine and leaf which is quite i mean i guess as you describe quite like middle class and um happy and flighty and transporting quite a dark decaying atmosphere um yeah i guess i haven't seen enough scottish films to think of like middle class kind of scottish film um, but yeah, Sunshine and Leaf portrays that perspective. But I guess it's just often not as interesting when people are really comfortable and their biggest problem is like who they're sleeping with. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I guess there are a few specifically Scottish things. Like there is a bit of a, a moment where they get off heroin and they're trying to go out and live life to the fullest. And Tommy takes them out to the great outdoors, as he calls it. And they're all drinking and smoking and can't be bothered walking out to the mountains and say, you know, this is horrible. Scotland doesn't fill us with patriotism. Renton just has a great speech about it. Like, there's nothing proud about being Scottish. It's the lowest of the low. We were colonized by effete assholes. <laughs> um, and then um, Sick Boy often is often giving this running commentary on um, Sean Connery as this kind of idealised Scottish male. But that's all I can think of. Or no, because, like, it goes into, like, how he sort of, like, developed, like, quite strong sexist attitudes. There's a bit of that in Trainspotting, too, but it's much stronger in the book, Barno. Yeah, right, yeah. My, 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 par- my partner... Yeah. My partner watched the film with me, um, and she liked it a lot, but she was put off by the fact that there was no real female characters in it like if there were a few female characters but they have very few lines and it was mostly childish males running around causing havoc (laughs) that kind of turned her off but she loved the music and psychedelic hallucinatory scenes uh so that almost brings us to the end of our round table do you guys have any other scottish films you'd recommend so um so certainly the wicker man um, there's, a, uh, there's another movie that I was initially going to talk about called Connect. So this um, a recent movie, so within the last two years, um, Kevin Guffrey, who was also in Sunshine on Leaf, stars as the main lead within the movie. And it focuses on male mental health, which is a huge focus within the UK. Um, and especially more now due to lockdown restrictions and causing a lot of male suicide and you know getting males to talk about their problems so this is a movie where he stars in a small scottish town he works in a hardware store and you know we learn throughout the movie that his brother committed suicide and that's like a strong catalyst for him and eventually go he plans to commit suicide himself but a stranger spots him talks to him stops him um and then they develop a friendship and he eventually um the stranger owns a care home and he eventually works for it and develops a relationship with his daughter and you know you find out well more of the drama throughout the movie um, so that one is a really great one that I enjoyed watching. Um, other Scottish films, I think those are the two that stand out for me just now. Jock, are there any other Scottish films you'd recommend? Um, if you like Trainspot and I dislike Men Angels Share, it's by Ken Loke, who's the same guy who did I, Daniel Blake, which I'd also recommend. Um, Angels Share um, reminds me a little bit of Trainspotting, but not that much 
Like, it's not drugs, but it still involves some theft. There's oh, I, would, I would recommend it too. Um, it has a similar heist type scene at the end of the movie to Trainspotting. Cool. Yeah, um, I haven't seen these movies, but the three other Scottish movies I'd love to watch and talk about are uh, Hitchcock's 39 Steps, Danny Boyle's debut movie, Shallow Grave, which also stars Ewan McGregor, um, and, and a movie called Ratcatcher, which I think is actually made in the Scott Gaelic language, um, which I thought, thought might be interesting to watch. Um, but yeah, we, obviously we've only scratched the surface of Scottish cinema. There's heaps of other great Scottish films out there. Braveheart, obviously a huge movie that we didn't get to talk about. So uh, go check out those movies and, and let us know what you think. Um, hopefully one day we'll, we'll come back to Scot- Scottish cinema and we can talk about some of those other films. But in the meantime, you can go out and watch them and tell us what you think. Uh, that brings us to the end of this installment of the movie Passport. Let us know what you thought of the episode and if you have any other Scottish movie recommendations. And uh, let us know what other world <laughs> movies you'd like to hear us discuss. Um, Glenn and Jock, are there any other countries you'd like us to, to travel to to talk about their cinemas? Ireland, certainly. Ireland, yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, Australia. That would be good for you, Duncan. Yeah, well, we did do an, an Australian movie roundtable oh, a couple oh, of years so ago. you did. You did. Um, but it, <laughs> We, we could definitely do some more on that. Um, I wouldn't mind doing New Zealand or even like maybe like Aboriginal Australian films because there's quite a few good ones of those. Any other countries you'd like us to, to talk about, Jock? Yeah, I'd quite like New Zealand. They're pretty similar company to us and just like science and like history and stuff. Oh, I would also say France. France, yeah. Well, yeah they, they've got a huge cinema, obviously. Cool. Uh, well, you can leave comments or questions on our WordPress page or join, it, or join us on the Vassals of Kingsgrave Discord server. I'd like to thank my fellow hosts for this episode, including Glenn, Jock, and Bina. And I'd like to thank you for listening. Goodbye, or as the Scots say, Mar Sin Lee.